0: Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode number 11. Welcome to this episode of the It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and as usual I'm joined by my co-host Caleb Zimmerman. How are we doing tonight? And today we're going to discuss a topic that I thought was too lengthy for the update, but its it resulted from research I was doing in the new book that should be out in November of 2022, And it's a book that's on the history of the American... That was easy for me to say. It is a book on the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship, which is the first title that was originated in the United States. The World Championship that William Muldoon held in 1880, which he contested in Greco-Roman wrestling, was actually brought to the United States by Andre Cristobal... And uh, Theobald Bauer beat him, if you want to call it that. They were working the matches, but they brought the title from Europe, and Muldoon would win it from Bauer in 1880. But that title did not originate in America. The American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship, which was the Catch-as-Catch-Can Wrestling Championship, was the first title to originate here. And the common timeline has always been 1881 to 1922, but as you'll see in another six weeks when the book comes out, hopefully, that it, that timeline is actually much shorter. Uh, some of the timeline was actually just promotional gimmicks. That it really wasn't a title and the people that supposedly won it from other people had no real claim on the title. So stay tuned uh, for updates. I'm hoping to release it the week before Thanksgiving. But it just depends on how much progress we make in editing over the next few weeks. So, do you want to just jump right into the topic for this week? Absolutely. So, when I was researching the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship, Mm -hmm. Gotch held both the World Championship and the American Heavyweight Championship for about two years. Although... To me, the title was really vacant even then because nobody was wrestling for the American Championship. They were wrestling for the world title. Yeah. But eventually in twenty in 2010, yeah, 100 years later, yeah. in 1910, they decided to put the title up between two of the wrestlers from Farmer Burns' training camp, which was Frank Gotch's training camp as well, mm-hmm. in a match between uh, Henry Ordman and Charles Cutler. Well, while researching this two-year period where almost all the matches are worked and it's bouncing back and forth between members of Burns' camp, I discovered that in early early 1911, Mm -hmm. when George Hackenschmidt came back to the United States... So let me go back for a minute and, and set this up. Okay. Because this does have bearing on the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt book And this week's topic is when do you have a responsibility as an author and a historian to go back and change a previous book? So the information I discovered, this is what I should have led with, I buried the lead. No, you're fine. When you find new information that impacts a work that you wrote in the past, when do you have a responsibility to go back and change that? Now, prior to being able to self-publish and print on demand in Kindle, you would have had to release another edition. Now it's much easier to edit and re-release the book. So the question I'm going to try to answer tonight um, is when do you go back and edit a book or revise a book? And bring me back to that Point at the end of the thing because you know historians tend to wander and I gotcha. ramble. When I wrote Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, I thought the only match Hackenschmidt had prior to wrestling Gotch the second time was with Stanislaw Zbysko, which was a draw, a 90-minute draw, which Hackenschmidt technically lost because he had agreed to throw... Zabisco twice in that 90 minutes and when it was unable to but Gotch knew, knew or felt Hackenschmidt was the money match and he wanted no part of Zabisco so he wrestled Hackenschmidt again after that match when Gotch beat Hackenschmidt in 1908 it took Emil Clank who was Gotch's manager three years to get Hackenschmidt to come back to the United States and wrestle Gotch again And for a while, it did not look like he was going to come back at all. He was already suffering from the knee injuries that would cause his retirement after the 1911 match in 1908. And they had been getting worse. So when he returned to Europe, he was training wrestlers, but he really wasn't wrestling himself because of his knee condition. Eventually, sometime towards the end of 2010. I keep getting 19 and 20. (laughs) Forgive me, folks. Towards the end of 1910, Hackenschmidt started feeling good enough that he thought that he could come back and wrestle Gotch. So he agrees with Clank to come to the United States to wrestle Gotch. And to try to generate some interest in the matches, he wrestles a number of people from Gotch's training camp which was a little dangerous in those days because while Gotch would not have wanted one of those guys to hurt him so bad he wouldn't show up for the title match in September, Gotch could get intel, which I think he did, from the guys he was training with. So he trained with Henry Ordman, Charlie Cutler, and Jesse Westegard, who was Jesse Remmers at the time. And I'm leaving one of them out don't ask me you uh, you know I don't know maybe it was just those three yeah the, the, those three guys were all in the camp they were training partners of Gotch and Cutler was one of Gotch's protégés Gotch actually trained him for the ring with help from his trainer Farmer Burns so I did not know about this five or six matches with Ordman Cutler and Remmers But, even though I didn't know about those matches, it doesn't change any of the conclusions that I came to in Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, so I would not go back and revise that book based on that. I think historians have a duty to correct bad information they've put out or uh, mistaken information. If they find new sources to correct them. I've not really had that with a book yet. Yeah. But I have had to do that with some blog posts. Because at the time I wrote the blog post, I didn't have the access to all the sources I have now. So mm-hmm. when I started writing in 2013, 2014, yeah. newspapers.com was around. <coughs> Pardon me. And you had the you know Library of Congress site and a yeah. few others. But the newspapers.com... Uh, the, the newspapers they have now has exploded mm-hmm. over the last several years yeah so there are sources available now that were not available back then yeah so I have found somewhere I wrote a post about a match but then I found other art at the time I could only find one newspaper article about it mm-hmm. but now I found multiple articles and I've corrected those blog posts but you could have the same thing happen with a book you could put something in a book that's factually incorrect. Yeah, And I think you have a duty to correct that, particularly when you can just edit the manuscript. It's a print on demand and it's Kindle. You can yeah. fix those pretty easily. But had those matches changed the conclusions I drew in Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, and then I'll just go over one or two of the conclusions I, I drew. Mm hmm. One of my conclusions was there's no way that Gotch paid Ad Centel five thousand dollars, which was almost half of his purse, yeah, to injure Hackenschmidt in Hackenschmidt's training camp, because he had beat him easily the first time,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: he knew that Gotch was not the wrestler even that he was in 1908. Yeah, those matches with Ordman, Cutler, and Remmers didn't change my conclusion. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact. It solidified the conclusion I drew because these were contests. All Mm. six of these matches were contests. And even though Hackenschmidt won all six of them, it took him almost two hours to beat Charlie Cutler, somebody he would have blown through in his prime. It took him an hour and a half to beat Ordman. So Gotch knew this is not the wrestler that I was wrestling even three years ago, and I beat him easily. So why on earth would he pay Ad Santel $5,000? Yeah. Um, so that was just one of the conclusions I drew that I was like, and I've always said there, there were rumors of a spy in the camp. I can't say it wasn't, or it was, but I've always said, if you will tell people 20 years later, you took $5,000 to cripple your mentor, cause Hackenschmidt was Ad Santel's mentor. He, he was wrestling as Adolf Ernst in Germany yeah. and Hackenschmidt was helping train him. And when he came to the United States, he became Ad Santel eventually. You'll take a couple hundred bucks to tell Gotch about his, his knee injury. Yeah. But Gotch already knew from those earlier matches he was compromised anyway. Yeah. So didn't change any of them. And we've got time. I, I can go over a couple more examples of one of the... So when I wrote Mass Marvel to the Rescue, mm-hmm. at the end of that book, I talk about how both Alex A. Berg and George Lurich, who were... Aberg was the star of the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament, yeah. to, at, from a wrestling sense. Yeah, He was the guy that dominated anybody, everybody and won the Greco-Roman Tournament. Mm-hmm. Lurich was Aberg's trainer and, and a very good wrestler in that tournament. He was a very skilled mm-hmm. Greco-Roman wrestler. He was in his late 30s by that point, so he wasn't the wrestler that he had been, but he was yeah. still pretty good. Those guys died in Russia in 1921. Mm-hmm. And the official cause of death from all the sources I've ever been able to discover
1: yeah.
0: are that they both contracted typhoid fever. Yeah. Typhoid fever killed Lurich, who was older than Aberg. Aberg was in his mid-30s. Mm-hmm. Aberg recovered from typhoid fever but caught pneumonia a few weeks later and died. Yeah. So there's like a month difference between their death dates. One's January, one's February. Yeah. I was contacted by an Estonian historian at least that's how they identify themselves and said that is not correct and and what he said was true Lurich and Aberg were fleeing through the south of Russia to escape the Bolsheviks Mm -hmm. they were trying to get out of Russia and go back to Europe and then get back to the United States where they were going to wrestle he said that the Bolsheviks caught them in the south of Russia Mm -hmm. and shot both of them
1: yeah
0: Okay, well, that is possible Mm -hmm. because it was a war zone at the time. And these guys were fleeing when they got sick. And so they could have been, they're not going to be shot a month apart. Yeah. So then that means that the Bolsheviks put this story out about them being sick. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm willing to entertain that that's the fact, but I need to see the sources that you're quoting. Yeah. And if you show me the sources that you're quoting, Mm. I will put that I will change that in the book yeah and I think it was originally on a blog post mm-hmm. and then you know it was in the book later Mass Marvel to the rescue they've never provided the sources yeah and I said well until you provide the sources the official sources I've seen from newspapers in Europe and the United States yeah every source I've ever found says this is how they died so until you can show me, and it could be because the, the uh, Russian archives have been opened up yeah. in the past 20 years. So someone could have gone in those archives and found a source that says this is what really happened to them. Mm-hmm. And if I ever see that, I will change it in the book immediately yeah. and correct the thing. But until that time, you can, every historian uses sources. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the best sources are first-hand sources. Yeah diaries autobiographies official records mm-hmm. you know if these wrestlers travel from Europe are you able to get the log that showed you know yeah. them coming to the United States and everything and because of wrestling and because it was a spectator sport newspapers are a big source for a lot of the early wrestling history yeah so you have to rely on sources and you have to cite those sources when you're putting out your facts and then you can draw conclusions from those facts. Now, we can argue over the conclusions. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do that. But the facts have to be backed up with sources and you have to be able to provide those sources. Yeah. So without those sources, I won't change anything. Now, there was another one. I had three that jumped to my mind when I thought about this. Oh, how can I forget? So, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, I believe it was Jim Cornette Experience, they were talking about the Montreal screw job, which is really a double cross. Mm-hmm. And that was when Vince double crossed Bret Hart in Montreal in 1997. Yeah. And they started talking about famous double crosses in history. Mm hmm. And they brought up the second Hackenschmidt Gotch match as a double cross. Yeah. Which my book definitely doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Okay, if this was a double cross, I've got to go in and revise this book. And I told you, I've got a couple guys on Twitter from Indiana. They, they have an Indiana Historical yeah. Wrestling Society. And it's a pro, It's a, on pro wrestling and stuff yeah. like that. And they also are really into pro wrestlers of today that have legitimate wrestling backgrounds. Because there's quite a yeah. few amateur wrestlers that are in pro wrestling, not too. Yeah. And they contacted me, because <clears throat> I heard it when I was at the gym. And they had contacted me. By the time I got home, I had a thing on Twitter saying, hey, did you ever hear that that was a double cross? And I said, no, but let me look into this because I I told you, I think that they're great historians. I want to look into this. Yeah. Um, I said, because if it was, I'm going to have to change the book. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into it. Well, what they were quoting as that being a double cross is a book called The Fall Guys that was written by Marcus Griffin in 1937. Did I tell you why I question a lot of the stuff that's in that book no Okay, I've written about it on the blog I think I've talked about it on one or two podcast episodes but this bears repeating because it is a great source to start your research with Mm. but you need to check it against official sources because I found so many inaccuracies in this book so a little background on Marcus Griffin I didn't know when I started reading it Mm-hmm. I uh, thought that he was just a reporter who had inside because he has a journalism background. Yeah. But like a lot of journalists in the 30s, and this is what happened to Sam Munchnick. Sam Munchnick mm-hmm. was working for the St. Mm-hmm. Louis Star Times or the Star. He was working for one of them, and they either merged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they merged together. And he lost his job yeah. as a newspaper reporter. Well, uh, Oh, Tom Pax, who was the St. Louis promoter, mm-hmm. hired Sam Muchnick to be his public relations guy. Yeah. It was not uncommon that they would hire journalists to do that for him. And the same thing happened in Buffalo, New York. Griffin, they hire him mm-hmm. to be the uh, <coughs> publicity guy. Yeah. And he was around Jack Curley quite a bit before he died, who was the New York City promoter mm-hmm. and some others. So he heard lots of stories, and one of the stories he heard was about the second Gotch Hackenschmidt match. Yeah. And so there were some true things in there. So Hackenschmidt got injured and wanted to pull out of the match. Yeah. That is correct. The backers... Uh, and this was one of the first promotions that Jack Curley was involved in, even though it was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Curley wasn't the New York promoter yet, but he had started getting into wrestling promotion. Yeah. And he was heavily involved with the Chicago promotion. I think he was Hackenschmidt's manager of record. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we're going to take a beating, you know, because they had already had a bunch of, that ended up drawing 30,000 fans in yeah. 1911 wrestling would not draw 30,000 fans again until the 1930s Yeah. partially because of this match mm-hmm. but the story is that Hackenschmidt wanted to pull out which was true mm-hmm. they talked him out of it because they were going to take a bath yeah. at the box office which is also true but then they said that Gotch promised to carry him
1: mm-hmm.
0: through the match let him have a fall and make him look good Yeah. and then he went out and gobbled him up in two straight falls yeah well, I had a real hard time wrapping my head around that because the two wrestlers that I've never heard of working matches yeah is George Hackenschmidt and Tom Jenkins. Mm-hmm. The only two. To the, this point. Maybe I'll find another one. But right now, those are the only two yeah. I know that did not work a match. And I'm like, well, that would be so out of character for him. But maybe at the end of his career, maybe he was desperate enough. So I went back and I read the accounts of the match and I'm like, no... And one of the things that Griffin asserted, now realize, he's writing about events that happened in 1911, which he wasn't around. Yeah. So this is what, in court, they would call this hearsay information. He got this information from Jack Curley yeah. 20-something years after the fact. Wrestlers and promoters, everybody yeah. love to embellish stuff anyway. So one of the things that Curley had told Griffin was, I made a killing on gambling.
1: Yeah.
0: Except that... The stipulation for Hackenschmidt going forward with the match Mm -hmm. was that Curley had to cancel all betting through the newspapers and they made an announcement in the arena that no betting would be allowed, that Mr. Hackenschmidt has requested that all betting be stopped. Now, if you go ahead and bet on the match anyway at that point, you're an idiot. Yeah. When one of the competitors says, don't bet on this match, you shouldn't bet on the match. So they gave people fair warning. So I don't know what kind of killing he would have made because it had to be announced in the newspapers Mm -hmm. and at the stadium. And then he went on with the match. And the first fall lasted like 14 or 15 minutes. Yeah. And it was a struggle for Gotch, and he finally got him down. The second fall went a lot quicker. I think Hackenschmidt resisted him as best he could. He got wore out very quickly because he wasn't in shape. He couldn't train with that knee being the way it was. Mm -hmm. The second fall was like in five minutes, and he got him in the toehold
1: yeah
0: and I think I've talked about that the, the, the way that fall transpired Gotch sh- made Hackenschmidt sort of embarrass himself by rolling to his back but the fans thought it was a work and went crazy yeah okay in my mind I still believe that match 100% was still a contest a contest yeah yeah so I just just because it's in the fall guys I don't take it as gospel and I always warn everybody I would not take whatever is written in there as gospel unless yeah. you double-check it because Griffin wrote that as a revenge piece. He got fired from the Buffalo office in the um, late 30s. Yeah, um, I found out about this in Lutez's book, Hooker. He wrote about it that Griffin was ticked. He got fired, so he wanted to make the wrestlers and the wrestling business look bad. Mm. So every bad thing that they ever did and some of the stuff they did do.
1: Yeah.
0: And in general, the stuff in the 30s when he was actually around it is more accurate than any of the stuff in the 20s and the teens. You really need to go back and look at that stuff. Mm Because he didn't have firsthand knowledge. He's just printing what he remembered and all of that. Yeah. But I did have to go back and do quite a bit of research because if that had been a work, Mm -hmm. I had to change how I had written about that match. Yeah, but the match descriptions and everything convinced me no that was a contest Hackenschmidt went went with it because he knew they were going to take a huge financial loss plus he had a lot of money riding on this too he probably knew at that point that's his last match yeah and there were movie rights Mm -hmm. they filmed that that's the shame of it all so many of these matches were filmed and are lost so the Hackenschmidt gotch the second match the film was lost yeah. a lot of the still pictures you see of that match on uh, the internet and that mm-hmm. are from stills from that movie that doesn't exist anymore yeah the Stecker the Stecker versus Zabisco after the double cross where they switch titles Strangler Lewis versus Wayne Munn when they switch the belts after the double cross and the shoot then work it started out as a shoot, but then it became a work. Yeah, contest in twenty eight between Lewis and Stecker mm-hmm. was also filmed. Mm-hmm. All of those films are lost today. So what a treasure trove those films could have been yeah. if we could have seen them. So so that's when you have a duty to fix something. Yeah, is when you've printed obviously false information. There's one thing I could go back and correct in Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, mm-hmm. but I when I wrote it, I wrote it as I'm not sure that these are contests or works, so I don't have to change it. The only thing that's changed is I'm 100% certain now that the, the tour through the Klondike yeah. in 1901 those were work that was a work that was a work tour. It was a work tour to. to Get a lot of money out of the pockets of gamblers up in the Yukon who were benefiting from the gold rush. Yeah. At the time and with the sources I had, I couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. But I said this has all of the earmarks with the way it's been written up and everything, this could have been some kind of work. And now I'm convinced it was a worked gambling scheme a scheme. Yeah. So I could have gone back and changed that aspect of it, but I already alluded to it in the book. Yeah. So People could have drawn their own conclusions then. But, yeah, in my opinion, that was a worked gambling scheme. Yeah. So, speaking of all kinds of things on video... Yes. I had you start to watch World Class Championship Wrestling, which was Mm -hmm. my favorite show. It was before Wrestling at the Chase, because I think Wrestling at the Chase was still on for a couple more months before... WWE took that over and were mm-hmm. Wrestling at the Chase, or WWF at the time. But we started getting world class in late 82 or 1983, and I think it was early 1983. Yeah. We got it on syndication, it was on Channel 30, which is KDNL, it's now ABC, but back then it was an independent station.
1: Yeah,
0: And it was on Saturday, no, it was on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And I never missed, I would get up and go to church at 7 o'clock. Mm. So I could be home to watch that at 10 and then Wrestling at the Chase at 11. And then WWF messed up Wrestling at the Chase. But yeah. I didn't see the episodes from 82 until I got the network. And they mm. put them on the network because we hadn't got World Clash into it. Everything from 83 on, I, I watched it all the way up until 88 when it was terrible. Yeah, it was actually started getting terrible around '86, but I watched it all the way to the end. Yeah. Um, more probably for nostalgia of, oh, this used to be really great. Yeah. And now that I've molder, I think Mid South was a better show. Hmm. But I still have a warm spot in my heart from World Class because I spent so much of my youth watching it and enjoying it. Yeah. And. You've seen David Von Erich and Carrie Von Erich from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So now you, I ask you to watch a match with Kevin Von Erich from 1982. He's still wearing boots. Yeah. After Not long after this, he forgets his boots one time and goes out barefoot and likes it and never wears boots again. Yeah. He's barefoot all the time. But he's still wearing boots in this match in 82. Because when we first saw him in St. Louis, he was wearing boots. And I wanted you to watch it for a very specific reason, and then I'll tell you what I thought of 1982 in general, because you've only seen this one match. Yeah. And I'll tell you how I compare 82 to world-class from maybe 83, 84, and 85, which I think were the... It really actually starts to tail off after 84, but you don't notice it until about 86. Gotcha. So just your thoughts on the match itself. It was
1: good. Uh, Had a surprise visitor near the end, of course, Uh, Mr. The Giant, Andre.
0: Oh, no, no, that wasn't Andre. That was King Kong Bundy. That was King Kong Bundy? Why does he look just like the goddamn giant? (laughs) No, that's Bundy. Why does he look just like the goddamn giant? Well, he had hair. Yeah. (laughs) You probably never saw him with hair before. Yeah. And, yeah, Andre was a good guy. Andre wouldn't have come in there and so. Yeah. The action in the match. So you saw Kevin Von Erich. Yes. After the match. A lot of flying kicks. and right. Yeah. <laughs> so, that normally didn't happen to the wrestlers yeah. that often. That, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to watch it. Yeah. So let me give you a little background about Kevin. And then we'll kind of talk about the match a little bit. Because the match went about 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And he was wrestling the great Kabuki. Yes, it was. So world class in 1982 the mm. Von Ericks were ma- mostly fighting older guys and it, I think it got much better in 83, 84, 85 because then yeah. you had the Freebirds come in you had Jimmy Garvin come in mm-hmm. and most of these guys were recruited to come in by David yeah. because he had been to Florida for the first half of 82 he brought Garvin in he knew the Freebirds and got them to come in uh, Iceman King Parsons, who is from St. Louis, comes in. He's a good guy. Chris Adams comes in. He's a good guy initially. And then him and Gino Hernandez become bad guys. They went much younger, and the product improved a lot. Yeah. But I think 82 was probably necessary because the Von Erichs were only in the business for a few years at that point. Yeah. And being led by all those veterans like Armand Hussein and Kabuki and all of that can only help those guys. So wrestling the Von Erichs, I don't think anybody ever said this to, about David, but mm-hmm. they said it about Kerry and Kevin. Was wrestling the Von Erichs was like being in a polite street fight? A polite street fight. Right. Yeah. The the thing they that Kerry the the main complaints against Kerry were sometimes could I, I think you remember seeing him wrestle Ken Patera? Mm-hmm. Sometimes those punches would come at wild angles and stuff like that, and they said yeah. you didn't know they were coming and stuff. And the way he would come at you was kind of herky-jerky sometimes and kind of throw guys off. Yeah. But the, for the most part, people don't complain about David and Carrie as workers nearly as much as they complain about Kevin. Yeah. So Kevin, I, I've heard people say, you know, we, we were really wondering if Fritz ever smartened him up. Yeah. You know, they are supposed to be working together. Yeah. Because he was really stiff. And you would see guys get tired of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. and that's why I wanted you to watch this match Yeah, because you saw Kevin's face um, let me think This is if anybody out there wants to watch this match it's the main event on the May 8th 1982 World Class Championship Wrestling uh, from the Dallas Sportatorium it's on Peacock in the first season or whatever sometimes their first season is not yeah. labeled the first season on there but it's the first available season even if it's not season one uh, and it was episode number 20, in whatever season that is. But it's Kevin versus Kabuki. And you see... So, I don't know if you picked up on it early on. Yeah. Where they rolled underneath the ropes, and they were mm-hmm. kind of tied up, and Kevin's pulling Kabuki's hair. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't normal tie-up and roll around like that. Yeah. <laughs> and it looked like they were having a real fight. Yeah. No. They weren't. They were working together. and You see them work together when they get the nerve holds. I was like it. But I think at one point Kabuki just got tired of getting knocked around yeah. because some of those kicks were stiff as hell. Because yeah. there was one kick in the when he was running into him in the corner. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, he connected with that one. And you see Kevin kind of adjusting his jaw after yeah. getting kicked. And that's not how they normally sold <laughs> what yeah. was going on, particularly a baby face. Um, and... Fritz said his nose was broken. It didn't look like his nose was broken to me, but both his eyes had been black pretty good. And I looked. Bundy didn't ever hit Kevin in the face. Yeah. So it wasn't Bundy that did that. It was Kabuki that did that. Yeah. So there was a couple spots where I was like, okay, I think those kicks might... Because there was another spot.
1: I know the one you're talking about where Kabuki is in the corner and he does like the front snap kick to his jaw.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Kevin's like (laughs) adjusted his jaw. And there was another one where Kevin comes running at him and he just hits him with a side kick right in the face. And I think that was the one that got his his right eye. Yeah. was that kick. And they said guys would get like that. Uh, Larry Matisik wrote in his book that Kevin would get a little too wild, so they would put him with a veteran to kind of slow him down. Yeah. And they said Dick Murdoch basically got him in a headlock outside of the ring and said, listen, you little blankety-blank if you don't slow down and calm yourself down, I'm going to rip your head off and crack on your neck, you know? Yeah. And he said, Kevin slowed up. (laughs) Yeah. He started working a little bit better. But he was so stiff, they would ask, did did, did Fritz smart him up? Yeah. And I didn't see too many people get mad and really start blasting him like that. But it looked like in this match, like, Kabuki had had enough and was like, okay, if (laughs) this is what you want to do, you're going to be stiff, we're going to be stiff. Mm -hmm. so and kevin in the interview afterwards it doesn't hurt a bit don't bother me and the Freebird said that's he never complained yeah you know he said they had a basic agreement don't mess my face up too bad you know Mm -hmm. but he goes other than that he goes don't knock our teeth out and you know we're good to go and he said kevin broke a tooth in one of the matches he came back dug in the chair pulled out got a plier pulled the rest of the tooth out yeah
1: went
0: on his business you know so they said that these guys never complain world class was hard to see through because of that yeah because these guys were a little stiffer with each other the Japanese wrestling also has that reputation yeah it's a little stiffer it's harder to see through but if you're a wrestler and you've got to be on the road seven nights a week yeah that style gets old pretty quick Mm -hmm. because you don't want to be hurting each other you know legitimately and particularly when you got seven nights a week that you're working and all of that Mm -hmm. so now you've seen Mike Von Erich starts wrestling in 83 yes but he never wanted to be a wrestler and you can kind of tell well I'm saying that's what other people said that he never really wanted to be a wrestler
1: yeah
0: and it if you watch his matches it appears that way he didn't really want to be a wrestler he just, it was the family business, and he kind of got pushed into it. The Jeb
1: Bush of wrestling? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he, he kind of got pushed into the family business, whether he wanted to be or not. Yeah. Um, something else I wanted to say about world class, and it's completely slipped my mind. This was a pretty short episode this time.
1: Well, yeah, no. Well, well, you were talking about your book, and uh, you know, our fight wasn't too long, so... Not a whole lot of detour rats we could have gone
0: down, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll get a chance this week to find out if you've got my immunity to strep or not, so that'll be something to look forward to. I mean, he's been all over me hugging me, and I'm not sick, so. Yeah. Well, I I never got it. Your sister and your mom have had it, between the two of them, probably 15 to 20 times, and I've never gotten it, so. Yeah. Hopefully, you got that immunity as well, so. Yeah. It's looking like it. So the next episode, I've been wrestling around. I want to talk about some of the older, historic wrestlers. Mm hmm But I want to do it in the context of the times, too. So there's a wrestler by the name of J.H. McLaughlin. Yeah. I haven't been able to find that much, but he is the first professional wrestler in America Mm -hmm. that made a living just off wrestling. Yeah. He didn't... A lot of guys before the 20th century, they would have side businesses besides the wrestling. Yeah. He pretty much lived off his earnings as a wrestler, and he was a Cornish wrestler, which was a specialty style of wrestling. Mm-hmm. And at a time when the dominant style was Greco-Roman, and the second most popular style, which would become the most popular style, was Catch-as-Catch-Can, or what today we call Catch Wrestling, which yeah. is got the submissions, it's hooks as they call them. Yeah. But there's there's a number of ways we can. I guess one of the things I've wanted to ask is: so Are you satisfied so far with the format of the podcast?
1: Yeah, no, we're uh, we're pretty organized. You know, we got our theme, and then we hit our beats. I know as we this go has on. been
0: non-traditional because you're not a wrestling fan, and you're you're getting introduced to all this stuff for the first time. That's the whole
1: point. I feel like. <laughs> um,
0: well, we 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 also had. I've thought about having a, watch a, a shoot contest mm-hmm. shoot. It wasn't a shoot in the traditional sense of the contests that happened before nineteen fifteen yeah this was where people stopped cooperating, which is what almost all things are today that people call shoots. They're not really shoots because the outcome is not going to change, yeah, you know. The great Antonio Antonio Noki who's a legend in Japan mm-hmm. he was uh, one of Ricky Dozan's proteges he started New Japan uh, pro wrestling which was the biggest company in Japan for a long time yeah he was the biggest star and he had legitimate pro wrestling and martial arts uh, I'm sorry wrestling and pro, uh, wrestling and martial arts skills
1: yeah
0: he fought a contest one of the worst things you ever want to see in your life with Muhammad Ali in 1976. And it's famous for being almost impossible to watch. Really? Yeah. Because he basically just got on the floor and like crab-crawled and kicked Ali in the legs so (laughs) Ali couldn't punch him. Um, And fans were furious over it. But he had some legitimate skills. Yeah. And the great Antonio decides in the ring that he's going to stop cooperating with Antonio Inoki and he got a very painful lesson so we we may review that one because it's available out there on YouTube yeah I think that the topic for next week that uh, or I'm sorry next week two weeks Hmm. October 24th yes October 24th I think I may talk about Joe Acton the little demon gotcha um Acton was one of the American heavyweight champions, one of the earliest ones, but he's one that's been billed as world champion, American champion, English champion. But he was unique in that it was very hard for him to find opponents. Oh yeah, because he was a very skilled catch wrestler, Mm -hmm. and people were afraid, including Muldoon, of getting hooked by him and injured. So maybe that maybe that'll be the topic for next time. We'll talk about acting, and then I'll yeah. figure out how I want to weave these personalities into the times. Because if you don't understand the times, it's almost impossible to understand the wrestlers as well. Because yeah. the wrestling in the 1920s was very different from the wrestling in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. The wrestling in the early 1900s is very different from the wrestling in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. So you got to understand those changes in wrestling to understand... The rustlers that came up during those times. Yeah. So I I think that'll be uh, a topic for next week or two weeks from now. My brain is all (laughs) over the place tonight. October twenty fourth, episode twelve will be on Joe, the little demon Joe Acton. So I think we've pretty much covered when you need to change uh, prior uh, books. Or articles or blog posts. Yeah. So I think we're going to sign off. If you like the show, we would uh, appreciate a review. That helps people discover the podcast. And if you have any questions you would like to ask us, you can do so by going to kensermanjr.com/slash episode eleven. There is a at the end. You can either email me. You can send me a Facebook question. You can send me a Twitter question. Eventually, we're going to have to get you set up where they can ask you stuff because maybe they'll find you more approachable. I doubt that highly, but but you can ask a question. You can suggest a topic for a future episode through there, and you could suggest you know anything you would like us to add or, or take away from the podcast our typical format is to do an update or an introduction yeah cover a main topic and then because caleb is new to pro wrestling go over a match or something from the past <coughs> and kind of get his uh thoughts on it maybe one of these days he's going to watch vikings yeah and we can talk about ragnar and ivar and Bjorn Ironside as well. Well, I can't
1: wait for episode 50 of this and for everyone to make fun of how little I knew during this recording. It's not Andre the Giant.
0: But, you know, you're at a disadvantage. You you were never a wrestling fan. If we talked about MMA, you could talk about MMA a lot better. Yeah. The one thing that does help you is you've got a grappling background. Yeah. Unfortunately, the modern wrestling is a lot farther away from the traditional grappling roots than yeah. even stuff in the 50s is probably farther away than you would have understood a match in the 20s or the 19-teens a lot easier mm-hmm. having the judo background than you will seeing something because there's yeah. a lot more striking and flipping and flying around and all of that good stuff yeah or not so good stuff depending on your perspective yeah. All righty. So, until next time, we hope you guys all do well. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Have a good night.